deal so much, of course, with what we call microeconomics or economics in general, uh, when you think of money or finance. But the word itself actually means house government, home government, home management, uh, is what actually the word economics means. So what I hope to do uh, together uh, as a church is look um, at a series of passages as we look at the end here of the letter of Colossians, and then we'll dip into for a couple weeks in a very small, short letter uh, in the Bible called Philemon, which was written around the same time and actually to the same general people as what Paul wrote to the letter of the Colossians. Uh, but what we'll look at this time is the whole letter of Colossians really deals with the supremacy and completeness of Jesus Christ in all of creation and redemption and how he is the locus and center of all truth and goodness. Um, what we'll do now is we'll take a pivot to say, so what? Like, if he really is, then what does that mean now for me? And it's amazing that as Paul would speak about the great things of Jesus Christ, he would end his letter in the most practical and minuscule ways by simply just talking about the Christian home. And so that's where we'll go this morning. We'll look at a brief verse first in Colossians 2, 13 and 14. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. It says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers, authorities, and principalities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. Jesus is reconciling all things through nails. Nails hold things together, particularly the most importantly in the cross, is that Jesus would reconcile all the world to himself through the nails, through his hands on the cross. That's the image of what we just read. Not unrelated from how he chooses to end this letter. As we look here in Colossians 3.18, you could flip over there. These are related in a very small letter. They're intentional on purpose for Paul. Speak this way. Then he goes, in conclusion, verse 18, he says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this is pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Then he says, bond servants even, obey in everything those whom are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And then he goes on just to say, the motivation is all that matters. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive your inheritance as a reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ uh, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there will be no partiality. And so there you have Paul outlining a household uh, code, uh, a regiment for behavior or relation within what is called the Christian home. This is in the context of just not any home, just not the families of the earth, that it would just be across the whole 
world. He's particularly writing, of course, to a particular church of particular Christians uh, who have particularly professed faith in Christ. There is the intro to what might be called why we're saying microeconomics. This is about the little stuff. See, Jesus loves the little things. It's a little, little letter to a little, little church of a bunch of little families. But all of that was predicated on Jesus is the cosmic Lord of glory in whom all the fullness of deity dwells bodily, that he would unite all heaven and earth and all the spiritual and human realities of everything. But that would mean nothing, though, if it doesn't apply to anything, if it's just an idea or a thought or a philosophy. No, the gospel is real. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. And with the power that he really has, not just to create ideas or speak about Jesus in some abstract way, he really is ruler of the world, and he chooses to demonstrate that governance, demonstrate his resurrected power in working into the smallest interrelations of our lives. That is where we're going. That is what we're going to look at. To say this is very much God's prerogative and priority for the world, for us as a church. And so here we'll look at really what it means when we say microeconomics. Economics is economos' house law or house governance. It's not just the idea that there would be this idea of a Christian home. This is a particular letter to particular people who are real Christians in a real home. So lean in on that. See yourself in this. This is for you. This is your life. You have a short life to live. And not many people would know your life or your name if you go outside of your own social connections. But God does. God knows your name. He knows your life. He knows your family, your children, and your relatives and your neighbors. And all of that is important to him. And if it's important to him, then it's important. If my life is not important to someone who lives in California, who doesn't know me or anyone around me, that doesn't mean my life's not important. Because guess what? The person who lives in California isn't that, not that important either. But if God knows your life, though no one else might know your life, we do live in the social media age. If you don't have all the likes and the thousand followings, you're not making a blog, you're not relevant. But you are. Because God cares. And God's the only one that's relevant. All of us are contingent. If he thinks your life's important, your life's important. If he, if he thinks your marriage is important, if he thinks your interactions around the kitchen or the dining room table are important, they're immensely important. For Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory, the Lord of the cosmos. And he intends to create a new heavens and a new earth and unite everything through his son. So now everything, though very micro, is very, very important. We'll see how to demonstrate this. Look at this phrase here. Colossians 1. Uh, he says in 119, in the beginning of the letter, he opens up this way. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell bodily and through him to reconcile unto himself all things. You see? It, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. There's the nails again. How is he going to do this? Making peace by the blood of his cross to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth. And within those bookends of what might be called heaven and earth includes you, your marriage, your family, your neighbors, your micro-relations. He is going down there. He's going down there. And if it's not real there, it's not real. If it's not real down in that little level, then perhaps Jesus isn't your Lord. 
If he hasn't controlled your tongue in your marriage, if he hasn't controlled your love for your children, if he hasn't changed your home dynamics and relations, then perhaps he's not in your house. Because this is what he's doing. And this is why Paul would choose to end the letter this way. He chooses to demonstrate his great power this way. Not only that he would control all things, because Paul goes on to say in Colossians 1.16, listen to this unifying kind of language. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, great, big, important. Well, that's above me, though I'm not that important to be in this list. And he goes on and says, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In Jesus Christ all things hold together. Yes, you can say in that verse we have the reality that all of the created world is held together by Jesus Christ down to the nuclear level, right? Now this is where it gets beautifully interesting that we would all say that as Christians, yes, Jesus holds everything together down to the nuclear level. In the nucleus you might have a proton and a neutron bound together with little electrons swirling around and the forces that hold those particles together in this verse is saying that's Jesus. See, that's what we call in theology providence. God upholds, he governs, he sustains, and he coheres with all the workings of this world that he, from him, through him, and to him, from him he made it, through his present power, and to his final destination and glory in the eschaton. He is controlling this whole thing down to the last atom, down to the last electron that swirls around the nucleus that no eye can see. He sees it and he cares. And if he cares about that, you better believe he cares about your marriage. You better believe he cares about your family. Do you see why Paul ended the letter this way? He upholds all things. But see, now this is beautiful. I want you to see this. (sighs) Electrons obey God's will. And so do protons and neutrons. They've never lifted a high hand against them once. He said to the proton, be positive. And you neutron, be neutral. (laughs) Now you cohere together and make a nucleus. Physicists call a strong force. There's no force in physics that they know stronger than that bond. It's a very small bond, of course, between a very small distance between two microparticles. If you open that up, you can blow up cities, of course. But that strong force is being obeyed by the command of the Lord Jesus Christ, from whom are all things. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. And then he says to the electrons, which is another force of electromagnetic force, swirl around and bond with other electrons and make a table and a chair and a church building and your own body. He upholds you that way. And there's never been one atom or electron in all the world that's ever rebelled against him once. Set that aside now. You see what he's doing? Polish uh, anthropologist, um, Bronislaw Malinowski, uh, never heard his name, but you'll hear the next phrase. He came up with this phrase called the nuclear family. We use that phrase freely now because of he popularized it. He coined that phrase out of years of study of traveling around the world and seeing civilizations of all types, all religions, 
social and economic strata of everything. And he says, there's this natural law or this universal social law that civilizations need this. And so he said, I'm just going to call it a nuclear family, the center. And you'd find it, of course, as being a mother and a father that come together and produce their own generation of offspring. And that unit is self-contained and coheres. It is essential. If that is broken or destroyed or compromised in any way, so does civilization. This is what an anthropologist would be very important to study. What makes a civilization go up or down? And he says the micro level, the little thing that matters, is this nuclear family. If that is compromised or opened, if you crack that force, you are working in the social quantum realm of the same thing as a nuclear bomb. You will just destroy the civilization. If you break apart that marriage, it's like breaking apart an atom. It will destroy the civilization. It's a nuclear family, he said. And so you can see, perhaps, the analogy. Now, I've thought this, and I've never said it publicly. And if you think I'm crazy, please ignore the rest. Uh, if you think I just have a very fertile mind that's imaginative, then so be it. But if it serves a purpose for an illustration, you see this. God's commandment right now, he says, is husbands, love your wives. Ephesians says the man is the head of the wife, the leader. And then he says to the woman, wives, submit to your husbands. There's an assertiveness and a lack of assertiveness. Now, I'm going to take the jump, at least for the purposes of uh, a sermon illustration. There's a proton. There's a neutron. You can't have all the positives happening. You'll never bond. There has to be a balance. There has to be a dance. If two are leading the dance, it's not going to work. Even in our culture, dances with the stars and whatnot, we can be egalitarians forever, but not on the dance floor because it doesn't make for good TV. The reality is there is no egalitarian. There is, even down to the level of physics, God has wired the world to work along the lines of protons and neutrons, that there would be a man who leads lovingly, godly, assertive. He is positive. He is involved in the marriage. He is involved with the children. Oh, that just pulls everyone together. That's a real nice, stable home. And the woman, the wife, is, is present and, and somewhat neutral in the sense that she is given this normative role of whenever possible, so long as it is within the Lord's will, submitting to the husband, coming alongside, and bonding that nucleus together. You see? That analogy, how it plays out, that Paul would even go to describe. There's so many things he could have said about marriage. Why these two short little phrases... That are literally two lines. Why? And then I'll let you guess what the, what the electrons might be. Um, they're always moving, fidgeting, never knowing exactly quite where one is. Uh, they're spinning, hovering around uh, the parents, I mean around the protons, incessantly. Uh, they're just full of dizzying array of energy. Isn't that interesting to see it work that way? The nuclear family. A proton, a neutron held together with a strong force giving a safe environment for these little electrons to just hover and just buzz and do a lot of other things. This, you see, you're, you're seeing God's plan in the world. Now, I say all that to say the most important point here, going back to what I said before. None of these protons or electrons have ever disobeyed the command of the Lord. Yet you and I 
have regularly. I want you to see the cross for what Jesus is doing in it. There was a time when Jesus was in the boat. The storm was raging. And everyone was afraid. And he slept. They woke him and said, Master, what should we do? We're going to perish. And he stood up. He looked at the wind and the waves and rebuked them. And all the fear that they had of the waves, you see, turned to be a fear toward the man in the boat. Where it says in Luke 8.25, it says, They were afraid when the wind and the waves obeyed him. They marveled and said, who is this man that commands even the winds and the water that they obey him? You see? That the winds and the water obey the molecules, the electrons within that system. Stop. Stop. Stop blowing, wind. Go down, waves. And they go down. And then the sinners in the boat said, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. If he... Why did they do that? Oh, because he's, I don't know how to say this any other way. The Lord. The Lord with a capital L. And now they're more afraid of what's in the boat than what was out of the boat. So, the cross is Jesus subduing us, rebellious little electrons. Do you see? Paul did not end his letter with a physics lesson. He could have. Oh, by the way, this holds this together and that holds that together. And whatever his contemporary most developed science of the time was with elements and just saying this is all held together by God, it would be wrong for saying that. But see, that's not the center of the gospel. Jesus did not incarnate himself and come down and die on a tree to subdue the world. The world is doing fine without him. We are the problem. And instead of that, he goes to the nuclear family and says, Now, now that Jesus Christ is Lord, he will unite all things by his power. And therefore, now you read that verse again where he says, Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Love them like Christ loved the church. Do that. I've given you the example. I've given you my life. And I've given you my spirit from which to live by. Now do that. Obey me. Let the whole world watch as you obey me. As there is this new realm of creation called the human realm of creation that has always been fallen and rebellious would begin to obey and be in this covenant bond that God has created through his son. That is what matters. That is God's business for us together as a church. See, the covenant bond is so important Right? There's a covenant bond. It's, it's like the bond that occurs with atoms and electrons, but it's a covenant bond in his blood. And what results from that is a covenant home. This is, again, a letter written to Christians. This is a Christian home. Everything he's saying is assuming an allegiance to Jesus. Right? So the covenant home is uh, the center of a covenant marriage. Produces a covenant home. Covenant home produces a covenant children. This is only making sense if you understand covenant. That there is a bond. There is a union between us and the Lord. And that bleeds out horizontally into our union with one another. The most important union marriage. Then to the children. Then to the church. Then to the state. These bonds exist. 
But they cannot properly be redeemed or restored unless the vertical bond of the covenant that he wrought in his own blood be restored and managed well and oriented in light of all things. This is by design. Remember, God loves, God loves working through households. In Genesis 1.28, it was his original design that God blessed them, he said. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Bringing all things in, in obedience, allegiance to God's cultural mandate was to happen through none other than the household. See, there's a huge problem I, I hope to do in the sermon series is to undo our modern conception of the household. When we had an industrial revolution and everyone got in their cars and traveled down to the city for their job in a factory or whatnot, and then of course now with, with other jobs of course and um, going, driving down to the office and whatnot, we are in a fulcrum or position in human history in which that is being done away with. We are entering out of an industrial revolution into an information age and COVID exp- they did that all the more because now even people don't commute to work. There's so many remote jobs. This is the time to go back to something that Paul would have known that is foreign to us. The non-industrialized family. The family that was not just a place where you come home and recreate and put your feet up after you're working. It was a family in the old sense of the word homestead. The place in which you produced. You know, if you were a coppersmith, you worked with your father or you were working on shoes in the front of the house and sleeping in the back of the house. You lived, you were with your dad all day. You went out to the field with your dad. You came back with your mom, the daughters, and the, there was a close connection within this nuclear family. That is Anna Green Gable's stories for us, right? But that actually is what Paul is speaking about. We now see the family as a place where we just go out, make some money, come back home, and try not to fight with each other as we plan our Disney trip. It's a recreation context. The flat screen TV, put your feet up. Kids, hey, be quiet. I had our day at work. And you just, hey, it's time for bed. See, there, there's a... There's a difference here. We're talking about the family as a coherent unit. And, and Paul would have been in this agrarian context, so when he's speaking about family, we have to remember he has no idea what we are living in. The idea here is that God loves working through covenant homes. right? So Noah and the boat, the ark, with the flood, hey, Noah, get in there, you and all your household. Abraham calls him for redeeming the world from his own father's house, to be his own household. Gives him circumcision as a sign, a seal for the covenant of redemption to come through Christ. And he says, now you go and circumcise with the seal of this symbol yourself alone, individually as an American. No. You and all your household. Anyone who's in your household. Be working through a household structure. David, king of Israel, given a promise that he will be a king and the Messiah will rule through his dynasty. And he wants to build God a very great big temple house. And God reverses and says, no, I will build you a great big house. And by that, the word in Hebrew connotes home, dynasty, generations, household, people, children, wives, marriage. See how that all worked? His promise to David was you will be a great family. And then down even to the new covenant in which the Holy Spirit is poured out after Jesus is resurrected. Ascends. The Holy Spirit is poured out. Peter interprets this as everyone is filled with God's Spirit and immediately starts praising God with their mouths, speaking in other tongues. And Peter, in the day of Pentecost, pulls that aside and says to everybody, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, For the promise is for you and your children. And all who are far off, 
Do you see how from the beginning, even down till now, the promise is particularly working along a highway structure. Yes, others can come into Christ through the preaching of the gospel and through faithful evangelism. But there is a particular just promise given to covenant families, covenant marriages, and covenant children, where he says, this promise is for you and your children and anyone else who is far off. So the center of the center is the need to look particularly at the family. And so next week, I hope to look at children. We'll speak about covenant children. What does it mean to be a covenant child in God's grand scheme of redemption? Jesus Christ on the cross, uniting all things. There is something unique to covenant children. That is, children within this covenant structure. But that would be too far afield. That would not fit without speaking about the center of the center, which is your marriage. And if not married, your future marriage. And if never married, serving someone else's marriage. Strengthening the church in marriage ministry. Not everyone's called to marriage. If you're single, praise God. That's a particular calling and that's good. The marriage Paul goes to when he says, wives, submit to your husbands. And then he says this, husbands, love your wives. Don't be harsh with them. I'm going to say something that I think we're all thinking. Paul would make terrible Hallmark cards. <laughs> That's not romantic at all. Just say, wives, you submit. Husbands, you love your wives and just don't be harsh, all right? Jeez, you know. If you're looking for that, go to 1 Corinthians 13. It's beautiful, it's lovely. It's his exposition of love. It's not as though our modern idea of romantic love is not important, because it is. It's just not the purpose of what Paul is getting at here. The reason he's speaking so tersely, succinct, almost to outline the most essential obligations of a marriage, wives submit, husbands love, is because he's speaking covenantally. He's speaking how you manage your house, how you rule your house, how you have the law over your house. What are your obligations? What is the most essential thing that needs to be done within a marriage that is right or appropriate? He's speaking covenantally. If you read what he's saying covenantally, it makes sense. He's not trying to write poetry. He's not trying to like, be like Shakespeare. He's trying to give a house code, a house law for the covenant home. We find this most clearly in a letter same time as Colossians, Ephesians 5, 25, where he writes in a similar structure, but expounds a little further about husbands loving their wives, where he says, husband, love your wife, and there he says, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How did Christ love the church? Many ways you could say, a lot. Well, yes, it's true. He loved the church covenantally. It wasn't as though it was just Jesus giving his body away. For us, would actually in any way really be salvation except for there being a covenant relation there. That there was in the mind of God an imputation that his death was your death. Because other than that, and this is where I remember one professor in college was saying, well the gospel is essentially just uh, infanticide. It's manslaughter. That the father would kill the son. What does that, does it, that's just wrong. It doesn't make sense. There's nothing virtuous in that. Yes, if you don't understand the covenant, there's really nothing about a father killing a son that seems right. Remember Abraham, Isaac, go kill your son. You read that story and your stomach turns and you're like, 
doesn't make sense. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel right. Because it's not right. But it's only right that you should be saved by Jesus Christ dying. Because there's a covenant relation. That if that covenant relation was not there, it wouldn't make any sense at all. But the fact that you would be in a promissory a covenant with God, that his death is your death and his life is your life, now it is all beautiful and redemption and grace and love upon love and grace and mercy and truth. It's all wrapped up in there. That's how Christ loved the church. And so therefore, Paul says, now you husbands, love your wives that way. No, not just giving your life away. Of course, do that. But there's a particular way. You do it in the context of a Christian home. That is, in the context of a covenant. You love your wives covenantally. Everywhere throughout Scripture, there have always been covenant leaders or covenant heads. God made a covenant with Adam as a covenant head. Noah as a covenant head. Abraham as a covenant head. David is a covenant head. And here we are in the church where Jesus is the covenant head. He has created a new family, the family of God. He is the covenant head over all of it. And now inside of that are tiny little homes, little micro-economies within this macro-economy of God's household, his family. And what the text is saying here, and what us modern men particularly need to understand and know, is you are the head of your home. Whether you think you are or you're not, God thinks you are. And he also thinks the sun should come up tomorrow. So you should probably factor that in. You are the head of your home. And you are called to lead that family like Christ leads that family. Now, I have a friend who is a mason. And he loves his job. And he's very artistic. And he makes great walls and trims and stone and brick. And he loves it. He loves it so much, he does his job so well that they promoted him to be a foreman. To be not only a mason, but a manager. And now he's actually not working so much with the stones that he loves and the art, he, the craft he's mastered. But now he has to manage people and he really doesn't like it and he does a poor job at it. Now here's the reality. Just because he doesn't like it and he might do a poor job at it, doesn't mean he's not a manager. It just means he's a bad manager, you see. It's an office. It's a post. It's a calling. Upon marriage, you become the covenant head. If you do that not knowing you're the covenant head, you're still the covenant head. You're just really bad at it. So if you can't avoid it, it'd be good to just be good at it. To be like Christ for your wife. To be centered in on your children. This is what it means to have this kind of right. It's actually very common to think this way. There was a study done in 2001, New Zealand Church Life Survey, it's called. And they were doing a particular survey to say why or how do uh, people in that region they polled uh, come to Christ, like new families that would profess faith in Jesus. What they found out about this study is really striking of what Paul is saying here, that husbands are the head of the home. For better or for worse, but it is unavoidable. You will speak about Jesus Christ by your absence, and you will speak about Jesus Christ by your presence, but you will always be speaking about Jesus Christ within your family. The child, if a child is converted, they found in the survey, 3.5% of the family comes to Jesus Christ. So some child might go to like a VBS or a camp, 
and the family thinks, okay, we'll, we'll consider Jesus. If a mother comes to Jesus Christ, the survey found that 17% of the family would make a profession of faith in Christ. But with the fathers, they found that if a father of a family comes to Jesus Christ, 93% of the family will follow. God has made it this way. There are protons. There are neutrons. There are men who lead well, and there are men who lead poorly. But they will exercise, perhaps, a 93% influence over their family. This is how God has chosen to structure the family, the economic world of our relations, to reach the world with the gospel. As we close, I want to look at this uh, one last analogy that you would understand that, of course, with all of this, we're saying that Jesus Christ is the Savior. Jesus Christ is the hero. We're not saying, boy, I better get my family in order. I better do a better job at this, either if, if I'm not even having kids being involved with the grandchildren. There is nothing in that. If, if we left here in the sermon, you think, I need to do better. I don't want you to think you need to do better. I think the point of the letter Colossians is, He has put himself on that tree for you. And because of that, the Spirit of God has been poured out upon the world and the church in a remarkable way that has been unmatched throughout the history of redemption. So avail yourself of that grace. Don't figure it out yourself. Go and put Jesus Christ in the cross in the center of your home. The image is pointed Colossians 1.19, he reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Do you need peace in your marriage? Do not think you'll just figure it out. I'll try better. I'll communicate better. We'll go on more dates. We'll do this and we'll do that. Fine, that's good. That's all good conventional wisdom. Colossians 1.19 says, he will reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace with his blood on the cross. Your marriage is in that. That's the kind of power that works. Not thinking you just figure this out and go to counseling. Do that, but remember, Jesus must be put in the center of this marriage and family. For he will hold it together. He is that strong force that unites all things. There is a, 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 a strongman competition called the, the Hercules Hold. And you might have seen on TV. And I think of, I want you to think of the cross this way. I pray that you would have this seared upon your mind. That when you think of these nails, that is he's reconciling all things through the blood by he's nailing it on the cross. There's this stretched arms of Christ, of course. And it's one to the other and one to the left. And this Hercules Hold, these massive men do, is they find these massive pillars hinged into the ground. And they hold it as long as they can. And hundreds and hundreds of pounds are just holding and bleeding and sweating and quivering. And then, you know, the guy holds it for the longest and he gets the record. And he's just the strongest man in the world in this thing. He can just hold massive things together, you see. That is the cross, you see. Jesus comes not to hold the molecules together. He's doing fine doing that. He came down here to hold us together, to hold us to himself, to reconcile the world to himself, and to reconcile families together so that there would be a coherent micro-level union that would bleed into all of society and institutions. And if that thing is not centered, if you don't understand the cross that way, there is no real power. There is no real power to hold us against all our sin because we are always sinning against one another and always ready to break apart. 
Benjamin Franklin, in his famous little book, The Farmer's Almanac, wrote a proverbial phrase, and he didn't originate with him. Many have wrote it. I'll close reading it with a different version, I hope that you remember. It says this. It's a, it's a little proverbial phrase to demonstrate the importance of small things. I want you to remember your family, your marriage, your life in this. The proverb goes, For loss of a nail, the shoe was lost. For loss of a shoe, the horse was lost. Speaking about a horseshoe. This was a placard everywhere during World War uh, II. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the battle was lost. For loss of a battle, the kingdom was lost. All for the loss of a horseshoe nail. Here's my version. For want of his nails, a marriage was lost. For want of a marriage, the children were lost. For want of the children, a family was lost. For want of a family, a generation was lost. For want of a generation, a nation was lost. And all for want of his nails. That's how important everything you do is. Because everything rests on the little things. Dear Father God, we thank you for your grace and mercy to us as a church. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we confess, Lord, that we need your reconciliation and forgiveness regularly in our personal lives and marriages and families. Lord, we pray that you would nail us together, knitting us together in love as you did your son on the tree, so that we would have nothing more but blessings as you absorbed all of our wrath and sin. Thank you, Lord. We pray for your grace. In Jesus' mighty, mighty name, amen.